morning. I love to hear the story of how Jesus brings people to faith in Christ, in himself. And I love seeing people get baptized and professing their faith in Christ. And next week we have all three services, we have more baptisms, so um, we have more, more personal stories to look forward to, and um, Christ is exalted, and uh, it's all good. I want to start with a question, and it's not the easiest question in the world, okay? A lot of people think they know the answer to it, but it's very complex. Here's the question. Do you think you'd be able to tell a false teacher of God's word from a true teacher of God's word? A lot of people would say, oh, that's, that's easy. I can, I, can, I can, you know, smell them from a mile away. How do you tell a good one from a bad one? How do you tell a true teacher from a false teacher? Now, today we're in part three of Malachi, where God is overruling the objections of his people. He is telling them things like, I love you, and they're saying, no, you don't. This week he says, you've turned aside, and they're like, how have we done that? So we're talking about turning aside from the way and basically going off the beaten path and taking others with you. This last fall, we were at a cross-country race, and our daughter, one of our daughters, was, was in the race, and the first place person was far out in front of the whole pack. And then second and third place were, were kind of closing in, and then the rest of the pack was way back. And at one point in the race, my midway through the race, the leader takes a turn. It was a wrong turn. But this leader takes the turn, and the second and third place runners take the turn and follow. Now, by the end of the race, we're like, where is the first, second, and third place people? What happened? Did they fall off the end of the earth? What happened? They were like sixth, seventh, and eighth place. It's because the leader took them off the path and went like a mile in the wrong direction and took two people with them. What we're going to see today is that God's people had turned aside from following him and it had affected those that they were leading. It's like if you're playing follow the leader and you get led astray into danger, maybe into quicksand, or they lead you down an alley in the bad part of town and you're like, how am I going to get out of this? What we see in Malachi 2 is that God is not going to ignore the despicable treatment that his name is receiving. People are dishonoring him and they're denying his greatness. And so even though God sometimes speaks very comfortingly in Scripture, this is not one of those times. Even though God will often um, present something in his word and, and he wants us to contemplate maybe a deep truth, here he is clearly correcting them. This is what is happening. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 2, and if you're able to, please stand with me. I'm going to read the first nine verses of Malachi chapter 2. We're seeing that God's people had become very full of themselves, and they had become arrogant. They thought they knew better than God, and so God's people had turned aside from following him. They had obscured God's glory. They had twisted God's word. 
God expected one thing, they did another. So Malachi 2, beginning at verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you did not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know, that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so, I will make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is God's word. The only perfect part of the service is now over. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are the one that reminds us of truth that we, we need to know. Lord, I, I pray that you would remind us today of, of, of truths that, that we may have heard before, but that we need to be reminded of once again. And Lord, that you would teach us truth that we have yet to grasp. Lord, that you would comfort those who are in need of comfort and that you would correct those in need of correction in any area of their life. Lord, we we believe that by your Holy Spirit you use your word in the lives of your people and that your word is powerful and that we often just run from one hurried activity to another without really stopping to think about the condition of our souls or the content of the teaching we receive. So Lord, I ask today that you would open our eyes and that you would teach us your truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Really love hearing the story of how Jesus brings people to faith in him. Looking forward to more of the same next week. And now we are looking at this passage of Scripture, and it's kind of an interesting flow. I just want to point out to you, it's really kind of an interesting flow. First, God points out the consequences. And then he points out what they should have done. And then he points out, he pinpoints what they actually did. So we're just going to follow the flow of this passage straight through these nine verses and see what we can see. God has a very significant thing, by the way, 
to tell us through Malachi. Malachi, his name means God's messenger. He was speaking, writing to a group of people that lived like 2,400 years ago. The unique thing about them was they were looking forward to the Messiah being born. They did not know it, but they were going to be entering a a segment of time where God was going to give no new revelation for 400 years until a short time before Jesus appears on the scene. So they're waiting for the Messiah to be born. They don't know when, but they're anticipating. And here we are. You fast forward to today, and here we are awaiting the return of Jesus, awaiting Christ's promised return and so god is going to say something very significant he said it very significantly to his people at that time and malachi was a reformer that's what he was the messenger of god he was a reformer he's god is trying to get his priests back on track now if you dare teach god's word to other people you need to take this warning to heart it is a public rebuke of false teachers and god is taking a very stern tone with his people through his word here he is doing it though lovingly i want to point this out to you he's doing so very lovingly in chapter 1 verse 2 he says i have loved you people are like well, how have you loved us these are the people that came out of the captivity these are the people that are back in their land back with the temple sacrifices back with the walls of jerusalem rebuilt and they're complaining that god doesn't love them so they have become very self-centered uh, very in love with their own ideas and they were more in love with their own glory and their own words than God's that's that's the state of affairs that we find the people of Malachi's time and what we see God doing is very lovingly yet firmly drawing his people back to himself in his grace so far in Malachi we have seen that Christians should not doubt God's love because the evidence is overwhelming. And that at that point, God and God's people were questioning his love. We also have seen that you honor God when you do what he says and you dishonor him when you don't. God's priests were dishonoring him by not obeying what he said to do. Now today, what I want you to see here and the, the point of this passage that it's really making is that, that God's glory and God's word are to be loved more than anything. That you love God's glory and his word more than your own and you will be on the right track in life. You don't and you will be on the wrong path. So God's priests were here on on this wrong path because they were more in love with themselves and with their own ideas than with God and his ideas. Who were the priests? The priests were the pastors and the elders of that day. They were the Bible teachers and the preachers and even the the biblical counselors of that day. There were consequences, God is saying, that to going off the beaten path. So that's what we're going to see first. Look at verse 1, and God makes it very clear, I'm talking to the priests. He was already talking to the priests in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1. So now in chapter 2, he's still talking to the priests. He makes that very clear by saying, and now, O priests, this command is for you. It doesn't get clearer than that. Now, I like to say that as the leadership goes, so goes the church. That if our leadership is unified, the church will be unified. If we are 
seeking God's glory and being true to God's word, that people will be uh, pointed in that direction and want to engage in glorifying God and handling God's word accurately. We are committed to this. We, we just came off an elder retreat this weekend, Friday and Saturday, and one of the, we're looking uh, towards the future and where's God leading us as a congregation, and, and the bedrock of what we're talking about is that who God is and what he has to say must be our central focus, that we must be intent on the glory of God. We must be intent on the word of God and not push these things off to the side and and put ourselves as the central focus. We will fight for that. We will not allow God's name to be drugged through the mud. We will not allow God's word to be dishonored. And as we trust God before God, we want to live with a clear conscience about that. That we are not doing things to manipulate or doing things to, to twist what God says, but that we are going to preach the word of God and glorify God. The priests weren't doing this because God says, this command is for you. Verse 2, he says, if you won't listen. They're not listening to God. They're not listening to what he has to say in his word. And he says, if you don't take it to heart to honor my name, then I'm going to send a curse upon you. Now God's talking about a curse. It's, it's the theme of, of this verse. There's going to be a curse upon you, and I'm going to curse your blessings. We saw last week, they were basically giving sacrifices that were blemished and imperfect and going against what God said to get more for themselves. So give the bad stuff to God. Give us the good stuff. We don't know if this blessing was, were those sacrifices or the things they said to the people. You know, presumably blessing them. Oh, God bless you. You just gave less so I could have more, basically. And he says, I'm going to curse your blessings. And then he says this. This is no idle threat. I've already cursed them. I have cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Then you get to verse 3. He says, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. See, their children were being affected. The people they were leading were being led astray, and their own homes were being affected. You don't sin alone, by the way. If you say, you know, I'm just doing some things in my life right now that I know aren't the best, but I'm... I'm probably going to pull out of that, but it's just a phase I'm going through, and and plus I'm doing it by myself and no one else is around. I'm not really affecting anyone. I'm here to tell you that you don't sin alone and that your sin is going to affect other people, and if you presume to lead other people in any way, be you a parent or a pastor or whoever, you are going to affect people when you sin. The sin of the leaders affects others even more. Why would James, in chapter 3, say, don't be a teacher if you can if you can stay away from that calling unless you're compelled to do it don't do it because you're going to get a stricter condemnation why because your words are not going to be just about you and your life but they will affect other people and you lead them astray there is a greater price to pay kids were being affected and you know, it should make those of us who lead very sober-minded. I've said this before, but none of our pastors and elders and deacons and other leaders walk around saying, you know, I'm God's gift 
to the church and I'm the best elder there's ever been or I'm the best Bible teacher there's ever been or I'm the best, you know, Sunday school teacher. I don't sense that at all amongst the people of Grace Orange. There's this humility of, I don't feel like I measure up to the calling. J. Vernon McGee used to say that. He said, the day that I think I'm an adequate Christian, Christian is the day that God should just take me home because I'm thinking too highly of myself at that point. All the people I know that I'm personally associated with in positions of leadership are saying, by God's grace, I will fulfill this calling and I don't feel like I measure up. God is, is saying to his people, look, it's not just you and what you're doing wrong, but you have led a whole slew of people astray and it, you're, you're, even your own kids are going to be affected. They already are. And then he says the thing that when I read it, you went, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. He says, I'm going to spread dung on your faces. He says, I'm going to spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. He's basically saying, I'm going to spread refuse from these animals on your faces. So in those days, they're, they're giving sacrificial animals, right? And it's still, they still had the excrement in their systems uh, through the, the uh, intestinal tracts. And, and basically, they were to take all that out and take it outside the sanctuary and burn it. Who here likes to fish? Let me just see a, a show of hands. You are the best. Uh, I go with my, with my word that third hour is the best because there's more of you that, that said they like to fish, but I'm still disappointed. Can I see those hands again? There needs to be more. Okay, who wants to learn to fish? Okay, we'll go. We'll go soon, okay? We'll, we'll go fishing. Here's the thing. I love to fish, but and I, I'm telling you, when you put the bait in, the, the, the anticipation is awesome, but that first nibble, that first bite, it's like, oh, the best thing in the world. Now, I also like to clean the fish. And you get a nice trout, you put it upside down and you slice it down its belly and then you take your thumb and you go and you run all the way down and you've got blood and guts all over your hands because you want to get it out of the fish so you can later eat the fish. You know what I'm saying about this. In that day, it was the excrement from the animals must be burned outside the sanctuary. It's, it's shameful stuff. It's not to be offered to God. Get it out of here. And God is saying, I'm going to rub your noses in that. It is what you think it is. And by the way, there's all sorts of names we could use and, and laugh and what have you, but this is no laughing matter. It, all ma it makes us giggle because we're like, I can't believe God said that. But he did because this was really serious. In the first hour, there was someone who came up to me after the service and brought their, their, their sermon notes that they have in a, in a journal. So I'm going to show you a slide of this because it... It's just very noteworthy, okay? And I realize you can't even see it. I can. But, but at the top left, there's a, a camel. And the camel is dropping what looks like boulders, but they're little pebbles, I'm sure. And, and then you zoom in. The next slide will zoom in. And, and it basically goes down through the food chain and on the people's faces. There's the dung rubbed in faces. Zoom in on that. And I think it's a pretty good representation if you have to draw a picture of it, what it might have looked like. Okay? 
All right. Get it out of your systems. Laugh again if you want. Go ahead, laugh again. God said that. And spread dung on their faces, okay? Here's what God's doing. He's saying, I'm going to do the most shameful thing to you because you've been doing the most shameful thing to me and my people and my word and my glory. And you are going to be affected by it by suffering the grossest indignity. What God is saying. This, this, can you think of anything worse on a personal level that could be done to you in public that would shame you in such a way that people would remember and no one's going to be around you because you stink? He was going to give them the most shameful consequence, the most humiliating thing. He's basically saying, I'm cutting out the cancer so that life can result. This is merciful. You know, some of you might be thinking right now, well, I've always understood God to be a loving God. Everyone tells me he's a loving God, and this doesn't seem very loving, so is God not loving? And I will just tell you, this is the most loving thing God can do in this situation. This is the most loving thing he can do. This is the most merciful thing. This is the most gracious thing for this situation. Because if he did not act, he would be saying, yes, my word can be profaned, my name can be dishonored, and I'm not really that interested in committed to my name. But God is interested in his name. And God is very committed to his name. God is the most committed to his own name, to his own glory. And so he has to act. He is, must act. This is the most loving thing that could happen. Verse 4, he says, you will know, after this happens, you're going to know that I've sent this command to you. God's going to give them a facial. And it's not going to be pretty. And they're going to remember it. And they're going to remember it because they're going to remember the covenant that Levi was given by God. He says in verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. They were to bring life and peace to the people. They were to point people to God, not away from God. And, and he says, I gave them to them and it was a, go- a covenant of fear. And he feared me. And he stood in awe of my name. Covenant is one of the key ideas in these verses here. A covenant is not like a contract that we think we can just write our name down and say, I don't really want to do that and I might probably won't, but I'll at least sign this. Covenant is a is a, uh, an agreement, a binding agreement between two or more people in which each pledges to do or not do certain things. John Benton wrote this. He said, there's no record in the Old Testament of God making a covenant with Levi in the formal sense. You make a chart of all the covenants in the Bible, this is probably not going to show up on the grid. Malachi, what he's talking about is God appointing the tribe of Levi to a perpetual priesthood. It's the idea. It was to be a perpetual priesthood. Numbers 25 says that um, God says, I gave him my covenant. It was a covenant of peace. He would have it and his seed after him. That's why his offspring are being rebuked because this was a perpetual through the, the generations priesthood. And he says, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood. God is saying, you have put me in a position where I need to do away with that or do away with you and I'm not gonna do away with that so I'm gonna do away with you. It's pretty much the idea. Now let me, let me also make a uh, distinction here between this kind of covenant where people are to do one thing, God's to do another, and it, it, this is the way it's supposed to go. The covenant, the new covenant in Christ, all the way through the Old Testament, where it first gets spoken about, it is a unilateral covenant that God makes 
on his own because he knows that sinful man will not be able to keep covenant with him. And so Jesus makes a unilateral covenant. God made a unilateral covenant back in the Old Testament days about sending the deliverer. And so we talk about Jesus' finished work on the cross. Every person who gives a testimony when they're baptized is saying, I didn't save myself. It was all of Jesus. Jesus saved my life. I was on my way to hell. I was hell-bent. And now I am alive in Christ. I'm forgiven. I've got a new life because of what Jesus did. Not from anything I did. It was the unilateral covenant. And God keeps covenant. He knew we wouldn't be able to keep covenant. But here, this is this priesthood, and, and um, it's serious. It's serious. And what I love about this is that embedded in this indictment of the false teachers is this, this great picture of what a true Bible teacher ought to be like. There's something that solid teachers of truth do and should be doing. And there are things that people would be able to see and recognize. Kind of familiar landmarks, as it were, of evidence of being on the right path. It's interesting in the, uh, you don't need to put it back up, but in the journal uh, entry there, when I talked about familiar landmarks, and there's six of them, by the way, Beside each one, there was the Arch in St. Louis. There was the, uh, the, the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever. There was all these landmarks in America that you go, oh, I know where I'm at. I'm in New York or I'm in San Francisco or I'm in St. Louis or, or what have you. But there are landmarks, these familiar landmarks that there would be evidence of being on the right path, the evidence of a right teacher, a true teacher. New Testament language, a good servant of Jesus Christ, like 2 Timothy 2. So the first is this, and you see it in verse 5. They have a right relationship with God. They, they fear God. God says it was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. See, God is concerned about who you are and what you do and why you do it. I love the baptisms, and I've said it, what, twice already. But, you know, uh, second hour, J.R. was given his testimony, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm literally taking spoonfuls out of a barrel here i've just come to faith in christ and i'm just taking spoonfuls out of a barrel and all i could say is the longer you come to know the longer you know jesus the more you should feel like you're taking spoonfuls out of the ocean because god is so great and so awesome and so mighty and so vast and you will never plumb the depths of the greatness of god you will know him more but you will still feel you will still feel minute in in the in the presence of an infinite god so they have a right relationship with God to begin with. They have fear God. They're humble in God's sight. First and foremost, your relationship with him matters to God. The second thing is that they speak true things. They speak truth. Look at verse 6. God says, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. Here's the idea. True instruction being in the mouth what is the idea of, of speaking the truth. Speaking the word of God truthfully and accurately. The idea of, of no wrong found on the lips. That's the idea of giving wise advice. Of giving right decisions when a dispute or a question or a quandary comes their way. So they speak true things. Think about our elders and deacons and 
Bible teachers at Grace Orange, there are a lot of, for our size church, we are way past the quota. We are so blessed at this local assembly of Bible teachers that are skilled in the Word of God and their lives match up with it. Because the third thing is they have godly character. They don't just speak true things, they have godly character. And God says, He walked with me in peace and uprightness. People talk about walking with God all the time. And you'd think that they were just taking a walk in the park and everything was great and they're going to get whatever they want. The idea in the Bible about walking with Him is that you are obeying His Word. If you're going to say, hey, I'm walking with Jesus, it means I'm obeying God's Word. So if you're walking with Jesus, you're obeying His Word. You're doing what He says. You're listening to God. Now, walking in peace is another thing. Walking in peace means you're pleasing God. You're walking with God. You're, you're doing what He says. And you're walking in peace. That means that you are pleasing to Him. And then it says that He walked in uprightness. And what that means is you're, you're obeying God's Word. You're pleasing Him. And there's total honesty. There's no guile. There's no hypocrisy. There's sincerity. So you're not trying to pull one over on people or have something that you're going to keep a secret or make people squirm or whatever. You're basically like, my life's an open book. I'm honest with you. And there's no guile. So they have godly character. They, they obey the word of God. They are pleasing to God and they are honest and sincere. The fourth thing we see is that they guard knowledge. They guard knowledge. Verse 7 says, very clearly, the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Now, Martin Luther said that the Bible is like a lion and that you don't need to protect the lion. You let the lion loose and it protects itself. And, and that's true in the sense that you've got to let the word speak. Let the Holy Spirit do what I say it all the time. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. But there's another sense where God says, you are to guard the truth. If you're teaching the truth, if you're holding to the truth, you guard that truth. You contend earnestly for the faith that has once been, for all, been delivered to the saints, as he says to Jude. Basically, guard what's been entrusted to you. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. Uh, keep it safe from being watered down or, or spoken against or twisted in any way. The fifth thing I will point out is that a true teacher is trusted. They're trusted. God says people should speak, should seek instruction from his mouth. And the reason why is because they trust him. Those who know him trust him and they're trustworthy. Therefore, people seek instruction. And the sixth thing is that they're sent by God. God says he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. He's literally a Malachi messenger of God that you have assurance the stamp of approval from God that this person's work is blessed by God it's like John the Baptist a man sent from God trusted because he spoke the truth didn't always speak truth that was comfortable but he spoke the truth he guarded knowledge he was trustworthy so you've got these six characteristics that are in this text of a true teacher true teacher so the people, the priests, were being false teachers and they didn't do any of those things. None of those things could be said about them. We'll get to that in a few moments, but I want to point one thing out to you in verse 6. Go back to verse 6. When God's messengers do what is right, I want you to notice the result, okay? The result. 
And by the way, when God's messengers do what is right, the results don't speak for themselves. And they don't speak for the messenger. The results speak for God. When God's messengers do what is right, the results speak for God. Here's what happens. People turn from sin. People turn from sin. Verse 6, it says, And he turned many from iniquity. The Old Testament states it this way. Levi made atonement for the people. Now, he didn't pay for their sins. He pointed them, pointed them to God. So the idea is when, when you do what is right, as a teacher of God's word, people hear the word of God preached, and it's preached accurately, and so they observe that, and they observe the life of the messenger. Now, I've said it already, but no, nobody I know that's an elder or a pastor or, or a deacon or a Bible teacher or whatever will, would say that they think they're God's gift to the church. They're humble. And we all think we don't measure up. But to the measure degree that you want to be pleasing to God and, and people see your life and they think, wow, that's not a bad example and that's a, a sinful person trusting a holy God and they want to be right with God, so therefore I want to be right with God. God, God does something. He uses the word of God and, and the lives of those people you know and trust and and the intersection becomes this place where you hear the word, you see the life, the life doesn't pull the rug out from under the word being preached, and people want to aspire to something greater than they have. And they say, I want to not sin so much. Because of what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. I see this example, and it's a pretty good one, and I'm inspired to do what is right, and I want to sin less, and I want to be godly. And it's really the idea of teaching through modeling. That you can't just stand up and preach without having a life to back it up. And it's also about a ministry of reminding. All sorts of people will say, you know, I've heard that before, Mike. You know what you preached today? Yeah, I heard that already. And it makes me sad whenever I hear that. If, it, if it's like this, well, I heard it and I already got it. Let's go on to something else. Because you're a different person than you were the week before. You're a different person than you were five years ago. And you should be, if you're a believer, you should be receiving God's word with greater eagerness. Kind of like water, that, uh, ground that gets watered often receives water better. Hard ground that never gets watered receives it less friendly. Okay? So the idea is that we should love to be reminded of things from God's word that we already know and that we're trying to grasp to a deeper level and that even, let's say five years ago, you maybe didn't get this idea as keenly as you do now. Or you might say, you know, I've gone backwards and, and I, I just, God needs to break the ground up a bit. Whatever it is, just be honest about it. My prayer is that that when you come and hear the word of God in any setting, you will be reminded of truth you know. Paul said it all the time. He goes, I'm going to stir you up by, by way of reminder. Peter said the same thing. It is right for me to do this. I'm going to remind you once again of, of, of these things about Jesus and about Jesus coming back and about how we should live as a result. My prayer is that you be reminded of things you know, but also be taught truth that you have not fully yet grasped we always think we've grasped it and god brings it back into our life god follows after what has been kind of set aside and he brings lessons back to us that we are like i got that one and god's like not so fast <laughs> not so fast 
I also pray that you would be comforted where you need comfort and also corrected by God in any area of deficiency. I don't know every one of you because there's obviously there's always new people in the mix, but those of you that I do know, I love uh, coming and, and, and preaching God's word. I love being the pastor of this church and I love it because I'm not a guest speaker every week. Wouldn't that be weird if a church had a guest speaker every week? No personal connection to the person preaching. Now, some of you I know better than others, but the idea is I'm looking in the eyes of people I I basically know, and I'm getting to know even better. And, well, it's been seven and a half years, and so I know you better than I did seven and a half years ago. But the idea is that the life and the word, and, and we're, we're doing life together, and, and it becomes a very good privilege then to do that with other believers. Because we see, we don't even, we don't measure it, but we see over time that God is growing us and deepening us and, and increasing our love one for another in the body of Christ. Now here's the deal though You look at verse 8 And God is now launching out into But here's how you've turned away from me They've, they've done it with the bad sacrifices We saw in chapter 1 They're dishonoring his name And then he says in verse 8 You've turned aside from the way There's a way that you should have been going You're not going that way And you've caused many to stumble as a result You've caused many to stumble by your instruction So You've corrupted this covenant And you're despi- I'm going to make you despised and abased. You're going to be very humbled before all the people. The dung on the face will be happening in front of all the people because you don't keep my ways and you're showing partiality when you teach. So now you see the characteristics of a bad teacher. <laughs> okay? You've got to m- make these decisions and go, what is this? What am I getting? You've got to make that decision about when you hear me preach or you hear one of our elders preach or one of our pastors preach or your Bible study leader preach- teaching. You're like, okay, what is this that I'm getting and is this accurate is this right these teachers had turned aside from the way away from God away from his glory away from his word they sought their own glory their own attention and I'll just say your motive matters your motive coming in matters now if you're preaching the gospel from envy and strife God still will save people the gospel is powerful you don't weaken it but you hinder the message you hinder the message your motive matters. You don't want to take a, a whole bunch of people and take a wrong turn. You don't want to do that. Now, what else did they do? They caused many to stumble. They caused them, they taught them to sin by their bad example. They said, it's okay. Don't regard the truth. They set these little traps. It's like the, the hook with the bait on it for the fish or trying to get people to, to trip up. Blatantly denying God's word. I remember when I was a brand new believer, I said to a man that I respected at that time, I said, it blows me away knowing that Jesus is God. And his reply was, well, that's a matter of opinion, and I don't hold that opinion. I said to another man that I, that I trusted and respected at that time, I said, I am so excited about the word of God that the word of God is true, it is inerrant, it is infallible, and I'm going to read through the whole thing. And he goes, well, you know, that thing about the Bible being true, that's kind of a matter of opinion. And you'll probably get over that idea of reading the Bible and stuff like that. You wonder sometimes why I'm kind of hammering, you've got to know the Word of God, you've got to get into the Word of God. It's because the background I came from, the, the tradition I came from, was basically saying, Man, it's not really true. Whatever you want to think. No, no, that's not what God says. 
God is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth and going, it's okay if you think this, if it's okay if you deny the deity of Christ, it's okay if you deny the authority of Scripture, it's okay if you deny the virgin birth and, and the, the, the bodily resurrection and the, and the, the physical promised uh, coming return of Christ. It is not okay to say those things really aren't valid. They were blatantly denying God's word. They were accepting or condoning sin. What happens is you start to say the Bible isn't really that important and all sorts of sins come in the door that are now okay because the Bible is not binding on your conscience or your life anymore and so you disregard it. That's what the priests were doing. They corrupted the covenant. Their life didn't match up with what they said and people couldn't trust what they said. Here's what was happening. The people began to seek the priest's acceptance rather than seeking wisdom from the priest to point him to God. Because God says you were showing partiality in your instruction. They're playing favorites. They're saying, you know, I'm going to treat you better because you're kind of in this class, but these other people I'm not going to treat better, and it's a a big injustice. And, And God's saying this is wrong. Don't just say what people want to hear or what you think they want to hear so they'll like you more. Look, I think if you preach the word of God, uh, people should get saved, come to know Jesus, and the church should grow. And however God wants it to grow. But you can also do all sorts of things to twist the scriptures and make it easy on everybody, and the church will also grow in numbers, but not in depth. I mean, what, the biggest church in our land doesn't preach the word of God? That's wrong. It's wrong. It's in Houston. Houston, Texas. So God's going to bring judgment. And how do you know they're fake? How do you know a fake teacher? Well, they're going to give you some truth. But their personal life's not going to fully match up. There'll be some hidden areas, and money and fame will often be the motive, and there will be persuasiveness and appeal, and you should be interesting when you preach the Word of God. But they will contradict God's Word. They will tell you what you want to hear, and they will have some exclusive knowledge that only they can dispense to you. And they won't use God's Word accurately. They will even misuse it, and maybe they won't use it at all. By the way, I'm wearing a watch today. For those of you in the front rows, you like this good-looking watch? Would you like this watch? Would you like it? Thank you. Okay, well, let me just tell you, if I gave it to you, you wouldn't be able to tell time with it because the battery's dead. <laughs> but it's a cool-looking watch, and I wore it on purpose today. It's been in my car for like three weeks because I've got to go get a battery. But it's a cool-looking watch, but just to prove to you that it can look all nice and shiny and not fulfill its calling. Okay, we're going to bring the plane down. We're going to, we're going to um, lose some altitude now purposefully and start to bring the plane down in for a landing. Uh, but Steve Lawson, one of my favorite preachers in Mobile, Alabama, here's what he says. In their zeal to lead popular and successful ministries, many are becoming less concerned with pointing to the biblical text. Their use of the Bible is much like the singing of the national anthem before a ball game. Something merely heard at the beginning, but never referenced again. A necessary preliminary that becomes an awkward intrusion into the real event. In their attempt to be contemporary and relevant, many pastors talk about the scriptures, but sadly, rarely speak from them. I want you to picture a person who's struggling in life. 
He has walked the path of sin. He is miserable. He is dissatisfied. And he knows that one day he's going to die and have to meet God face to face, and he's not ready for the appointment. And the very thought of it frightens him, and he decides to go to a place that God's word should be being taught. The preacher there will surely know how to get a person right with God and surely be able to declare it boldly. And so he goes with hope, but to his surprise, he finds nothing. The preacher dabbles in the shallows, functioning as somewhat of a pop psychologist. And he gives the impression that he's not really that concerned with eternal things. So our struggling man leaves and walks on to struggle further. He came to the well and there was no water. It was dry. He was thirsty and there was nothing for him because the preacher had departed from the way. And God will not be mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. Revelation says there's going to be one who sits on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you dare represent Jesus, you've got to do so humbly, you've got to do so dependently, you've got to do so carefully, and loving Jesus more than anyone or anything. Because if you don't, you're going to be like an empty bucket, and thirsty people will walk away with what they don't need. Pastor Doug and I were driving home from the elder retreat yesterday, and we were listening to a podcast from a nationally known preacher, not the one in Houston, who's got really cool hair, by the way. The coolest hair, I know. But this person kept preaching, and it was, they're like, hey, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And then you get to the last 10 minutes of the sermon, and it was all about him. And it was right about when I was getting home, and I finished listening to it, and I was, felt empty. I'm like, what just happened? If you receive teaching... You cannot take the bait of false teachers like a fish would do, taking the bait on a hook. You've got to be like Bereans. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, get this, says they were very noble-minded and they checked the scriptures to see if what Paul, the apostle Paul was saying was true. If they did that with Paul, do that with me. You need to do that with me. You need to do that with any teaching you're receiving. Trust God for discernment. There are plenty of people happy to kind of just put up with wrong teaching for all sorts of reasons. A lot of times because they don't know it's wrong. They don't know the word of God well enough. It's time to grow up. The extended adolescence of not knowing the word of God must end. You look at this scalding, blistering indictment on the priests and and you kind of have to stand back and go, wow, God is holy. As the worship team comes back up, I want to point you to the one we should be thinking about right now. I want you to recall a priest on the other end of the spectrum from the priest of Malachi's day. This priest perfectly performed in every area in which the priests of Malachi's generation failed. He stuck to the path of obedience to God perfectly. He represented the truth of God in word and deed and never deviated, never misled anyone. He never compromised the truth in order to become more popular or rich and powerful. And he kept the covenant of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one with whom we have to do. This is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord God, thank you that you are who you say you are. And thank you, Lord, that Jesus is the way. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you perfectly fulfilled the office of high priest. We can know, those of us who are believers today can know with assurance that the sacrifice you offered for us in our place has been accepted by God and that you are now praying for all who believe and you are sympathizing lovingly with us. And Lord, we are confident that you will continue as our high priest because of your resurrection, the power of an indestructible life. And Lord, we, we think about the, 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 the huge failure of the priests of Malachi's day. We think of the huge failure of many Bible teachers today. And Lord, we just become very thankful, not proud, but humbled and thankful for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest. We pray, Lord, that we would cherish your glory and your word more than our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.